Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer, entrepreneur, and educator David Franz. First of all, sad to say that an audio giant has passed. Yeah, Rupert Neve has passed away at age 94 due to non-COVID pneumonia and heart failure. 94 is a good long life, and in that life, Rupert really made the best of it and made the best of it for us as well. Just some facts about Rupert that you might not know. First of all, even though he was born in the United Kingdom, he grew up in Argentina and designed his first audio amplifiers at age 13. His first company actually made hi-fi speakers. It was called CQ Audio. Never saw those, actually. He designed his first mixing console in 1961, and that's also the year that his company, Rupert Neve, started. In 1964, he built his first transistor console. Up until then, most consoles were tube, and he managed to actually make transistors, which they didn't sound too good at the time, but he made them sound not only good, but legendary. Interestingly enough, the original Neve factory buildings in Melbourne were torn down and replaced by a housing development they're now called Rupert Neve Close. In 1973, Rupert sold his original Neve, and he stayed on for a couple more years, leaving in 1975. Then he started a company that he had until the end of his life, ARN Consultants, which also helped start Focusrite, which was his next big console venture, and that folded in 1989. Along the way, he consulted for companies like Amec, Taylor Guitars, Legendary Audio, and SE Electronics. Rupert moved to Texas in 1994, and he and his wife became U.S. citizens in 2002. In 2005, he established Rupert Neve Designs, the company that still survives and will survive since he passed down all of his designs as well as his design sensibilities. Rupert has been widely cited during his life He won a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1997, an AES Fellowship Award in 2006, 16 Tech Awards, and was named Studio Sound's Audio Person of the Century in 1999. More than anything, though, he established the bar for audio quality that many are still trying to reach. He will be missed. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, we all know about radio's fading influence, but... Surprisingly enough, it still accounts for 39% of audio consumption compared to 18% of streaming. However, the latest Music Watch report has found that those numbers are actually swapped when it comes to just music consumption. So in other words, about 38% of our music consumption comes from streaming and about 15% from the radio. Now, this is actually a big deal from the standpoint that record labels are changing substantially in how they look at radio. It's a long time coming, but it's finally happening. Record labels are decreasing or eliminating their radio promotion teams. The reason why is radio used to be the head of the consumption curve. In other words, that's how you discovered new artists and new songs. Now it's at the end of the consumption curve. In fact, what's happening is you discover your music by streaming and radio helps to elongate or extend the life of that song. So everything has changed and it's accelerated a lot, mostly because of COVID. Now, the thing is, radio is passive listening. It's perfect for car commuting. But now that many of us don't commute any longer and no one knows if that's ever going to come back to the way it was, well... It turns out that radio just has less and less influence. Superstars only get about half the radio audience as they did before. 
And not only that, there are fewer radio spots than ever. Top 40 radio only plays 18 songs in rotation. So internally for record labels, promo departments used to have all the power because it was a promo department that actually made a hit a hit. No longer. Promo departments now have less and less power and, like I said before, are even being disbanded. So, life has changed a lot when it comes to radio consumption, and that's made record label life way different as well. My guest this week is producer, multi-instrumentalist, and educator David Franz, who wrote the very first book on Pro Tools, as well as creating online courses for both Berkeley Online and Lynda.com. Besides running his label Underground Sun, an ED artist development and event production company, Underground Saul, David is also the content manager for Lynda.com and LinkedIn Learning, where he works with creative professionals to create courses, including yours truly, on the platform. During the interview, we spoke about writing the first book on Pro Tools, doing a deep analysis of Miles Davis, his Airstream trailer-based studio, the technique of melding electronic and live musicians together, recording an album remotely, and much more. I spoke with David via Zoom from his studio in Ojai, California. Let's go back to when you got started in music. You were a drummer first, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had a lot of musical instruments in the house. My mom played piano. My dad played guitar. So those were always around. And there's pictures of me playing. And I took piano lessons when I was young and some guitar lessons here and there and bass lessons. But uh, there was age eight, uh, was it 11 or 12? I said, I need to learn an instrument. And this guy down the street was a really good drummer. And I'm like, I want to do that. And then soon after I found Neil Pert and I was like, oh boy, <laughs> this is it. Is that your favorite instrument? Uh, no, uh, no, not anymore. Guitar, because I, I love writing songs is my biggest passion. So writing on the drums is not exactly the, <laughs> sometimes, you know, you get a beat and you're like, okay, that starts things off. But uh, no, guitar, that's, that's where I'm at right now. I mean, guitar and bass, I love playing keys, but. It's the guitar is the first thing I'll grab. You know, it's funny. I did some things with Terry Bozio a few years ago, and he had his huge drum kit. I don't know, 40-some drums that he had, but he had a bunch of them that were tuned. He could actually play a melody because they're all tuned to notes, and, um, you know, then he was triggering a synth. So I guess you could write on drums, you know, more, more than just a beat. <laughs> When you have a kit like that, yeah, um, one of my, I have a friend, you know, Simon Phillips lives up here in Ohio, and so we hang out from time to time, and his kit is one of those ginormous ones as well, and they're all perfectly tuned, and so I'm, uh, you know, I don't know how he writes his songs, but I'm sure he gets a lot of inspiration from that, too. Yeah, he used to have a studio down here, it was right next door to a former partner of mine at California Vintage Guitars. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he had it for a while. And Toto did a bunch of their records there, as a matter of fact. It's just a small place. You'd never know it was there. Well, and then he brought it up to Ojai, and then Ojai burned it down. So, <laughs> um, but he's rebuilt. And uh, so I think he's actually moving into his new spot soon. So oh. that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Okay, let's jump ahead. So you go to Virginia Tech. Yeah. But you don't study music. I took as many courses as I could, but I was, I, my parents, okay, so God bless them. Like they didn't know that I could be a musician or some kind of music related. I couldn't have a career in music. They're like, you know, they knew how much I was into it in high school, but they said, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer, be whatever, make a career, you know, something you can make money at. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so I get to Virginia Tech and I'm going to be an engineer, apparently taking as many courses as I can in music. There wasn't that much of a music program there, but um, I took everything I could. MIDI programming. I took guitar lessons from a ridiculous jazz guitar, uh, jazz sax player there, Chip, on, Chip McNeil. And then played in every single band I could, I could play in. You know, I was playing in three or four bands at a time. So <laughs> it was there. It just didn't know where to go. 
until midway through my master's degree when I started getting jobs, job, you know, um, interviews. And I would go and see what the jobs were really like. And I'm like, this is, this is horrible. I do not want to do this at all. So <laughs> came up with an idea for a master's thesis that uh, involved music. And then that was just my exit. I was like, I got to get out of here. I had the same experience. I'm trained as an electronic engineer and I had one job doing it and it lasted for exactly six weeks. <laughs> yep. And and what it was, it was so bizarre because I was in a room that was filled floor to ceiling with schematics on every wall. And I would get stuff in. I had to troubleshoot it, but theoretically, it was telecommunications back before, you know, the internet or anything. And um, all these fancy phones, actually. So it'd come in with the tag on, uh, this is wrong or whatever. And I'd have to look at the schematic and say, oh, well, it must be uh, Q17. I never knew if I was right or wrong. Oh, my God. That sounds like you made the right choice. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, this was kind of in between, you know, when I was out of one band looking for something else or one of those things about the six yeah. weeks. Your thesis. Tell me about yeah. that because that sounds really interesting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's called Mathematically Modeling Jazz Improvisation with Markov chains, something like that. It, it has all those words in it. I don't remember exactly the, the title, but um, so I was, my master's degree was about um, industrial and systems engineering. And one of the subtopics of that was optimization. In that area of focus, there's a thing called Markov chains, which is basically statistical analysis of predicting what can happen next probability wise. And so I looked at these things and I was like, this is a great way to potentially predict in a jazz solo where uh, an artist might pick their next note. If they're playing, you know, uh, a C on an A minor chord, where, where could they go next? And there's, it's a probability matrix. So there's obviously there's 12 potential tones, but if you stay in key, then it brings it down. Um, to, you know, less, um, depending on what the, what the key is. So I went through and found uh, John Coltrane on Giant Steps, obviously an amazing song. Um, and what was really cool about that song is that it's very uh, patternistic. And also he played basically eighth notes almost the, all the way through all of his things. So it took that took rhythm out of the factor, you know, so all I could, all I needed to really do was look at the eighth notes, one to the next. And so I could look at every single chord and see what notes he would play on top of those chords. Fortunately, um, someone amazing out there had transcribed all of his recordings from every recorded version that he's ever done of that song. And so I got all those transcripts and, you know, sat down <laughs> often at a bar while I was having a drink and plotted out each note from that and then inputted that ultimately into a spreadsheet and then did the mathematics of it and then created these giant probability matrices that could tell, you know, when he played this chord, what chord he, or what song, what note he would go to next and next and next, and had probabilities for all of those different things. And so from that, you know, you could tell where certain areas where he was more creative or not, where like some chord progressions he would play, you know, 50% of the time he would play this exact pattern. And then other times he would play, he, he went out a lot more. He tried a, a bunch of different stuff. And from that, I started creating, you know, thinking about intelligence and creativity and how um, creativity could potentially be, in this one particular case, sort of, um, uh, you know, quantified, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, so it, it led me into a lot of different directions. So I got to have the, the engineering, you know, the optimization kind of stuff, um, and then the music. 
and then the creativity, the psycholo psychology kind of intelligence tests and stuff like that that I got into with it. So it tied together a lot of really cool topics for me. What did you learn from that? Was there one thing that kind of struck you? Well, the bigger picture thing was that I could have taken that data and then clearly with technology now, back then it was, it was kind of pushing the envelope, but you could create solos that he didn't play, but were completely in his style. Um, that yeah, I kind of wish I could use that data. I probably still could at some point, and there's probably a, a computer program that could handle that super easy right now. But the the bigger things were sort of the the creativity and like looking into like where he where Coltrane got more creative and where he felt maybe tied in a little bit more um, in certain parts of the song. That was pretty interesting to me. Well, yeah, Giant Steps is one of those that to many musicians so far out there and so beyond them that they can't get their arms around it. So it's different for you since you're, you're pretty intimate with it, that you could actually see those things that most people can't. Well, the numbers don't lie, you know, so you can, you can look at it. I could say, Oh, during these two chords, you know, the, the probability of him playing something the same was a lot less then on some of these other ones where he was sort of boxed in maybe by the chord progression or he just didn't have as big of a vocabulary for that change or something like that, you know? Because so much of what he did with that song was he just played, practiced these, you know, really fast, you know, uh, patterns. And so was able to, you know, piece them all together in these certain ways that just sounds incredible yeah that's the one thing i remember from my time at berkeley and it's probably the same i want to get to that with you actually but it's probably the same where when you went by the practice rooms and you listened to the sax players they were all basically doing the same thing it was these patterns and how fast could you get yeah i mean it's uh, it seems like a rite of passage you know in a way to kind of get to that level where you can pull it off yeah you know. <laughs> okay, so from there you went to Berkeley. Yes. What did you study? Ultimately, music production and engineering. It took me a minute to kind of figure that out, but um, I got there. I thought I thought I was going to be a songwriting major, and because that's what I absolutely love to do. But then I kind of realized that well, coming out of Berkeley with a songwriting degree doesn't really maybe get you anywhere. But if you can, you're going to at least for me, I was going to be songwriting no matter what. So I might as well learn a, you know, a skill that goes along with it. And so I progressed from songwriting to, they had a degree at some point called contemporary writing and production, which is sort of the middle ground. I landed there for a minute and then ultimately got into MP&E. Uh, and that was, I'm so happy I landed there. Oh man. <laughs> what a great major to have there. I helped start that program. Well, your influence goes way deeper than you know, my friend. <laughs> well, especially with me. <laughs> believe me, when we started it, it, it was nothing like it ended up to be. It, it was kind of the gleam in everybody's eye to kind of make it. And, it, you know, there wasn't much at first, and especially as compared to the way it is now. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was no, it was difficult to teach at the time because. No one knew how to do it. I mean, there was no manual on, on how to do a lot of that stuff. So it was difficult figuring things out, especially figuring, you know, exercises out for people. I think I failed miserably at it, to be honest with you, but it laid the groundwork for later. Well, and that's, is that why you ultimately started writing some books? Because like, nobody's done this. No. The reason for me is I was a good recording engineer, but I was a, a, a mediocre at best mixer. But I knew all the great mixers. Mm. So I went to them all and I, I asked them how they did it. And they told me, and I thought to myself, well, if I'm like this, I bet there's a lot of other people that want to know this. And that resulted in the, the mixing engineer's handbook. So, and most of the, my books are like that, where I want to learn something. So I go and I ask people that are a whole lot smarter than I am. It's been working so far. 
Well, I can tell you that uh, you were a huge influence on me while I was at school. And then particularly when I wrote my first book and all the subsequent ones, I mean, you were, you inspired so much of that and were such a guide. We didn't even know each other then, No, but I was, I was tapping into your, your energy a lot during that time period. Well, it's nice to hear. Tell me about the first book, the Pro Tools book, right? Yeah, I was um, at Berkeley as a student and was uh, basically interning or work studying at Berkeley Press, which, which had just started back up. I was, you know, employee number four or something like that. And uh, we were seeing all these books coming through and, you know, I was helping photocopying these. And I'm a master's degree person in there photocopying for hours and hours and hours and making like $3 an hour or whatever it was. I'm like, you know, my time could maybe be used a little better. <laughs> so I ended up, and, and at Berkeley, at the time, we had one Pro Tools system that was on a floating desk that would go from studio to studio. Nobody really knew how to use it. And right at that same time, uh, Pro Tools LE was about to come out. And I read the first review about it in, in a magazine. I think it was like six months out. And I, I went to Berkeley Press. I'm like, we have to, somebody has to do a book on this. Like, this is going to be huge. Pro Tools coming to the home studio. We got to do it. And I'm like, I'll help. You know, maybe I'll help one of the professors or something like that. And they're like, at that moment, for some reason, they were upset with the professors or just like, ah, why don't you just do it yourself? And I'm like, uh, okay, I've written a thesis, but uh, I haven't really written a book or written a book before. So, but anyway, I just dove right in and I was, it was during my senior year of Berkeley, which was insanity. So, you know, I had, I had to keep two jobs going. I was playing in two bands. I was trying to have a girlfriend going to school full-time and writing a book, which I didn't know how to do, using a software that I barely knew how to use. <laughs> so uh, it was a hard year. <laughs> but I had you in my corner, Bobby Osinski. Well, I'm, I'm curious, how did I influence you on that? I, I mean, I didn't know how to structure a book. You know, I didn't know how the tone should be. Um, so I would look at what you did and, you know, a few other references, but like, I'm like, how do you talk about this stuff? And so fortunately I had help, you know, I was with a publishing company already, Berkeley press. And I had Paul Feckler, who was the digi design marketing manager at the time. So he was reading what I was writing. And, um, you know, I had a lot of help from my, my, advisors, my faculty people were giving a lot of assistance and I was kind of like melding almost like the Pro Tools manual and all the stuff that I was learning at Berkeley and sort of putting them together and then looking at what you, how you kind of structured stuff and kind of melded that all together. My experience with Berkeley Press was pretty negative actually. Mm. I guess you experienced it in a, another reincarnation. But for me, it was, they, they came to us, me and a couple other guys that were teaching music production, they said, people are having trouble getting started in the studio. Can you write a manual? And I sat down, I wrote the whole thing. Mm. And I gave it to one of the other teachers who then rewrote it and rewrote oh. it so poorly. And I didn't see it. I didn't get a chance to see it. <laughs> so when, when the book finally came out, it was just horrific. And I, I don't remember anything other than just being horrified and I saw it. And that was kind of it. I didn't think anything, uh, until now, actually, I didn't think about it. But uh, the, Sorry the other, <laughs> to bring up a bad memory. <laughs> the other thing I remember is how bad the deal was. Oh, yeah. It was such a low percentage. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's such a low percentage. that I, I looked at it and I thought, is this actually worth it? Yeah. Well... I I can't speak to that. I don't know what your terms were. I know what mine were, and I didn't know any better. So I just did it, and it was trial by fire. And I almost 
like I didn't sleep for a year. So when I came out of that experience, I, I, w- I had lost it. Like I had lost my mind basically. <laughs> so. Okay. So you had the same experience that most first time writers have, and including me, where you finish the book and you think, well, I'm never going to do that again. Right. Well, it's funny. I'm, I've been listening to um, Tim Ferriss's uh, podcast a lot lately, too. And uh, he talks a lot and has a lot of writers on there. And they talk about their writing process a lot. And it's just it's so nice to, you know, however many years later to hear people's struggles and how hard it is to write a book. It is ridiculously hard to write a book, even if it's just your full time job. So I look at you and I'm like, Holy, you are so prolific I, you know, during like to, for me to get mine out, I got it out in a year while I was doing all that other stuff, which is looking back is pretty impressive. Um, but I never want to do that again. <laughs> like that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. That was horrible. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty good at it now because I know the process. I've done it so many times. You just go on a cruise, right? You're just like, oh Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, except for the one I did now. I, that was actually one of the harder ones, I have to say. It's the Music Mixing Workbook, and it's actually a series of exercises if you're brand new to mixing. It's for students, you know, in schools. So there's 175 exercises. So I wrote the whole book without doing any exercises. I did it conceptually, and that was easy. And then I thought, I better go through myself and actually do these exercises and I wound up rewriting everything. And it was difficult to get it to the point where, well, this makes a difference when you, you actually do this operation and you can understand what's going on. Yeah. But, so conceptual works one way, but actually, you know, physically doing it is separate. So it, it was hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can't, I want to check it out. I was reading about it today. It just came out, right? It's just, it's like fresh. It just came out yesterday, and it's number one today in three categories. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So enough about me. How did you get out to California? I was, okay, so I'd been in Boston after Berkeley and um, had a production company, Underground Sun, was born in Boston, and been working with a bunch of bands and working on my sound, like how, how I was doing my, my stuff. Um, and I just got to a level where I was like, there were two things. I got to a, a level with my production where I was like, okay, I'm good enough, I think, to be in California and be in Los Angeles and sort of like compete. Because um, I didn't feel like I was there when I got out of Berkeley at all, even though, you know, I was going to move out there, but 9-11 happened and that's a whole other crazy story. Uh, so I finally got to a level of where I was, felt my quality was good enough. And then once I started thinking about it more, I realized that way more of my friends were out there anyway. And why wouldn't I just go out and be closer to all my contacts and live in a sunny place? I had been in Boston for like 11 years and was depressed for nine months out of each year so especially up there yeah it's cold the wind coming off the trials so when i when i decided to make the trip or decided to make the move i i I did one last trip out here and it was it was like california gave me this big giant hug Uh, i got off the airplane and as soon as i i walked up to the baggage thing my bag came right up with me i just grabbed it i didn't even lose stride walked right out to the rental bus thing it pulled right up as i walked up walked right in i get to the rental car place they're like sorry mr franz we don't have your car but we're going to upgrade you to this nice you know convertible i'm like okay (laughs) and then i was like off to a meeting with a an awesome producer and it went super well and i'm like oh my gosh this is my place it's welcoming me so that was that was joyous, and then finding a really cool spot in Venice was was awesome. So, yeah, it all came together. Yeah, Venice was the place for a while, and I don't think it is so much now. But there was a lot going on down there, music wise, for many years. Yeah, it's unfortunate where it is right now. Um, I think I got it in its peak, you know, sort of the rise, and then 
it's as it started dipping is when I fortunately got out to Ojai. Why did it dip? Do you think? Snap, Snapchat, Snap came in and uh, started buying up a bunch of stuff. And they there's a there's I guess there's some legal stuff where they they had a ghost corporation that covered it all up and bought all kinds of stuff and I mean other other tech stuff but it kind of turned from more artsy to more tech bro kind of vibes and it was always with the art side of it there were a lot of actors there were a lot of um, musicians artists of all varieties um, down there but then as tech started coming in the rents just went through the roof housing costs were insane and the crime didn't necessarily go away it just got a little weirder um so there was always like venice was like art and crime getting along together yeah right (laughs) um (laughs) but it just yeah it and then you know like certain things like like snap like snap bought the freak show thing that's down on the boardwalk they bought it closed it down and didn't put anything in there and so it just took away so much of the character so anyway, I don't know. I'm a little bitter about it, but and now the homeless situation down there is is pretty gnarly. So that's unfortunate for everybody. And I'm sure the pandemic has a lot to do with that. But well, you're in a good part of the world now. Ojai, California, is a primo spot for those who know of it. It's a magical little town. I gotta say, pretty lucky. I miss LA though. I love coming down there. So, and it's, it's a super easy drive just to get down, but it's, this place is, has, has some special, some special juju. I want to talk more about production with you because you, you said that you kind of found your technique in Boston and what I've always found about you, you have a nice balance between electronic and live instruments and that's kind of rare because it usually goes one way or the other but you're kind of in the middle well a lot of it has to do with the music that i like i ride the line between wanting the rawest blues roughest performance along with edm that is just you know straight four on the floor so i want somehow to meld that together the soul of the human expression with the solid, you know, shake your booty. That's a hard line. It is from the standpoint that you you run the risk of alienating one audience or the other. And if you, you alienate both, that's a big problem. But there, there's also the chance that you can meld both together. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times it's a lot of my productions do have both in in them so it'll be a live drummer and you know loops it'll be synth stuff that's you know to the grid along with guitars that are raw so it does kind of pull all that together and hopefully it works you know certainly it takes honestly it takes a lot of of working on the timing and making sure the feel is solid yeah Yeah, and that's always a problem that I think everybody faces when you kind of meld the two together because it's easy to get stuff on the grid, obviously, when you're doing electronic, but then you you almost feel like you have to put the live stuff on the grid as well Mm -hmm. or at least get it close. So how do you do do that? Well, part of it... I think stemmed from when I was originally playing, like one of my bands in Boston, we would play along to Pro Tools. I was the drummer, I controlled Pro Tools, but so we would have it aligned to the grid, but I could go, you know, speed up or slow down, but still stay on the click. And I think that that drummer mentality sort of helps me in all the production that I do, whether it's guitars or bass or whatever. And kind of like, if it, you know, to me, I kind of like can see a bass line, even if the drums are right on the, the grid, if the bass sits back a little bit, or if the guitar is, you know, 
back and forth a little bit or something like that that kind of gives it the human element as long as it doesn't get too too whacked out it kind of lets it sit in a in a different place or a good place hopefully i've always found that if you get that stuff close to the grid but not exactly on and that seems to be kind of a sweet spot except you know there are things accents and starts and stops and things like that that behooves you to put those on the grid but everything else can breathe pretty well yeah and you know like there'll be yeah i mean so you might like take let's say a verse loop or something like that or or something you know i'm thinking of like some drums that i've done recently where it's like i'll i'll kind of put them to the grid but it won't be loops it'll be full performances that so there's a lot of variation so that adds to it even if it's timed well having velocities that are different because it's a real human playing and then you know maybe there's accents or like the downbeat on a big fill happens a little early like a normal human would do um leave that in and make sure that everybody is kind of aligned with that or something like that so little little tricks like that i guess you talked about recording. Tell me about your Aerostream studio. The Airstream, Airstream. yes. Yeah. Um, so a couple years ago, I bought this. Uh, basically, it's the longest Airstream that they make. It's an 80, 87, 88, 87, um, three-axle Airstream. And we decided to put a basically turn the front end into a music studio. It's still fully functioning as a, you know, I've taken it across the country and back and you can live out of it. It's big enough. It's actually, it's super comfortable. It's really, really fun. But I got Hanson Sue, who you know, yeah. from Delta H Designs to come in and spec out the front end and turn a metal tube into an acoustically treated, really good sounding, room basically where i can record vocals um and so he i'll send you if you go actually if you go on to undergroundsun.com you can see pictures of it there's there's the outside and then the inside and so basically the front end has wooden panels that have uh the dhdi you know design stuff on them the the way that they manufacture their panels that they usually put in as I think it's like square or foot square inside of um, often inside of uh, fabric. So, but these are just exposed. And so they curve around um, in, I think they're four inch blocks basically. And they curve around and then we have panels um, that cover the windows um, and then doors actually these um i forget what he what he calls them but they're basically these panels that come down as doors so it's basically it's all treated and then we have a couch that's in there that you know obviously sucks up some of the sound too but it, it sounds actually sounds really awesome i didn't know much about airstreams until recently when i started to do some research i found that people are so passionate yeah. about their airstreams it's it's incredible there's a giant community out there you know for all kinds of stuff you know you want to learn how to fix something you want to know the best place to get hookups so you can get your water and electricity you know if you want to figure out where the best places are to go out on blm land where you can be totally off the grid there's all that information out there are there other studios only a few that I've seen, and most of them are parked. Mm. I don't know of any other ones that are mobile like mine. Ultimately, yeah, when we, when we get back, you know, pandemic over, I would love to be able to, and this was the goal, was to be able to go anywhere to do any kind of recording. And, you know, even the, the, the acoustics of it enable me to mix actually really well and, and, and master a little in there. Um, so... Basically, I can do, obviously, you can't have like a full band, but uh, you could get a couple of players in there for sure if you needed to. Mm. Well, let's get to Underground Sun. So you've had that label for a long time. 
and it's a specialty label because it's following your production senses. Tell me about the evolution of it. Sure. I mean, in Boston, it started just as a sort of a production house, I guess. Um, and I work with bands or various artists around Boston. You know, I didn't really know what a label was, um, to be honest. And then it sort of developed into when I got to Boston or when I got to Los Angeles, Venice, I turned it into what I called an artist development company where I would help artists not only just write songs and produce them, but also to do crowdfunding, um, music videos, marketing, all the stuff to try to help launch their careers. Um, and then ultimately, kind of when I got to almost Ojai, basically was when I sort of turned it into an indie label, which, you know, what's an artist development company? What's an indie label? They're pretty, pretty similar, but it just seemed to, we'd kind of taken some steps up. And so it seemed right to call it an indie label. Um, and now we've been, you know, branching out from the music side of things into live streaming and doing a lot more in the video space. Um, so over this past year, we started doing live streaming from the Airstream where we'd put on like these hour long specials where we'd feature a lot of underground sun talent, um, some other talent, local talent from Ojai because we couldn't go further, you know, but ultimately, and then we did some interviews, you know, like long, long, you know, over chat, over video chat and everything like that too. Ultimately, getting to a point where we were doing these longer form pieces about various artists and culminating in the last kind of things that we did was the, these artist spotlights and um, the artist mind where we kind of did like a full on 22 minute um, feature about music creation and, and creativity in general with a full interview with um, my friend Tim Arlen, um, which turned out. I thought really great because he works on a, an olive oil farm here in Ojai. And so we got to go out on the olive oil farm and he told us all about what it takes to make olive oil. And we, we tried some of it and we drank wine together and he played a song and, you know, so we got into the whole like lifestyle of, of what it's like to be a musician and, and doing other creative things. I love that olive oil. It's delicious too. I he gave me a bunch of it. I use it every day now. It's it's changed my my eating habits for for the good. So let's talk a little bit about Linda and and LinkedIn Learning. Sure. How did you connect with that company? After I had so I'd written the few Pro Tools books and had started teaching and written the online courses for Berkeley's online school about Pro Tools. And I got approached by Linda while I was still in Boston um, teaching at for the online school. And they said, hey, we want to do some Pro Tools classes. Do you want to do that? And so they flew me out. And this was when way be, in the early days where Bruce and Linda, the founders, would take every new author out to dinner and, you know, kind of wine and dine them and everything. And I remember going... They took me to this Greek restaurant down here in Ventura. And while we're having dinner, there's a, a, a what do you call it? A, a dancer. What do you, the dancers with the, with the bare bellies. Yeah, uh, a belly, belly dancer. dancer. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like sitting here with, with, you know, trying to impress Bruce and Linda and this belly dancer. And she was just beautiful. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I, what's going on here? <laughs> is, this, is this the test? <laughs> and so apparently I, I passed. So <laughs> whatever I did or did not do was right. So, um, but yeah, and then it turns out, you know, the CEO at the time, Eric Robison was a huge music fan and he was the one and, and an amazing uh, saxophone player. And he played in um, uh, the other founder of Microsoft's band, uh, not Bill Gates, but um, Paul Allen. Yeah. He played in Paul Allen's band. And um, so he, his, the music segment was like his baby. And so I kind of came in and, you know, did a few courses with them and then finally moved out here. And um, they started to want to build out the music, audio and music area. So 
after a few iterations of, of a few people coming in, I was like, Hey, why don't I do this? And Eric said, yes. And so <laughs> I became the content manager for that area. And then it's since expanded. Well, yeah, we, we grew the area. Uh, we had you come in and do some classes, which was awesome, particularly the, the um, ART course, the audio recording techniques course is still one of the best ones. I think it was, I think it was the most expensive course we have ever made at Linda and LinkedIn combined. <laughs> you made your money back though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's beautiful and it's still obviously kicking in the, in the library there. So if anybody is out there wants to check this course out, I mean, just pop in there and see it's beautiful. Like we, we, we killed it on that course. You killed it. But yeah, uh, Linda grew. We, in 2015, we got bought by LinkedIn and then LinkedIn got bought by Microsoft. So I'm technically working for Microsoft at this job right now. And I've since moved on. Audio and music has become a little smaller. Um, and so I since have moved over to video and motion graphics, animation, illustration, but I'm still a musician. <laughs> Once a player, always a player. Can't get rid of that. Well, I can't help it. I mean, it's just, you know, with running the label and I mean, I'm actually, I, I'm almost done with my own first ever solo album now. So I'm over the moon about that and just ready to just make, 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 make more music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, you're in the right place to do it up there. <laughs> you're not going to have a lot of distractions. No. And, you know, we figured out, I don't know if what your time is, but I, I figured out an interesting way. You probably know a bunch of different ways of doing this, but like of recording, we did uh, vocal tracks with my producers down in Atlanta, but we figured out this really cool way of doing remote sessions that works like a charm. And I, I could, I'm sure we're going to be doing this for probably the rest of my life, you know, doing it like this. Hopefully we'll be able to be in person, but like when we can't, this totally does the trick. Were you using source elements? Nope. Uh, what we were doing was, so the, the, the simple part was we would set up our phones would be a video chat. So I would, I'd be standing in front of the mic and I'd put my phone I've been to his studio. His name is Will Robertson. He runs Gallup Studios down in Atlanta. Um, one of my best friends from Berkeley days. I get to work, whenever I can work with him, I, I do. And he's actually up for a Grammy this year, which is awesome. Excellent. Um, so I put the, the phone where he would be like looking through the window. So it's like I'm looking at him in the studio. And then I give him control over my Pro Tools ses session via Google, uh, Chrome extension, uh, remote desktop. So he runs Pro Tools from his computer, but it's my Pro Tools. He's running my computer. So we don't have to deal with any latency, except the latency that he might see in the video versus the audio. And then we use this plugin called Listen To, that puts that you put on the master fader and that shoots him an audio signal of the whole mix. And that's it. This situation is works well for one tracking one person, you know, and there's no, I mean, there's no latency because he doesn't hear anything different and he's just hearing the full mix. So, you know, if there's a little latency between the video and the audio, it's, it doesn't really matter. He's not probably not even looking at me while I'm, anyway so but uh that's i'll definitely look into that that sounds amazing yeah um this is a ten dollar solution so i don't know <laughs> well source connect has a free version but it goes up from there it can get very um intense but you know you, you get what you pay for so but there, there's a lot of different tiers of the service all right last question what's the best piece of business advice that you received or you learned along the way? Oh, you saved the hardest one for last. Um, business advice. One of the things that I've, I don't know where this falls, but one of the big things that I've been 
dealing with or getting into or trying to figure out lately is quieting the, the negative voice in my head. <laughs> so, so having self-compassion, um, because I think that that has been one of the biggest detractors for my business and myself and my sanity and my musicianship and basically about everything. Um, I am very hard on myself and I know a lot of people are. The inner dialogue is often pretty negative. And so I think correcting that or working on that, first acknowledging it, noticing when it's happening, and then using some techniques to kind of quiet that, I think are going to pay huge dividends in the long run. They already are. And I think that it helps potentially attract positive energy to you. I've noticed that in the past year, I've been able to attract some really amazing people to work with me that I'm still kind of in shock that they're want to contribute and, and be part of it. And I, I attribute that to sort of this self-compassion and outward compassion and using that energy because people want to work with the people that they like to work with. And so if you can bring that energy and it starts with the inside, if you're feeling negative on the inside, you're going to project it out. And so I'm, I'm working on that constantly now. You can find out more about David at davidfranz.com. That's David Franz, F-R-A-N-Z, all one word, davidfranz.com. And his label, Underground Sun, at undergroundsun, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.